It's Friday, September 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Good news for home buyers. The crazy housing market cooled down last month, albeit by some very modest numbers. Still, it's an improvement for many buyers that have struggled and have been outbid. Average number of offers per house have gone down, less inspection and appraisal contingencies are being waived, and we are seeing more price cuts. Nicole Friedman, U.S. housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why some prices have eased. Next, there's been a huge hack of internet company Epic. They have long been the last hope of websites belonging to groups like the Proud Boys, QAnon conspiracy theorists, and others known for extreme posts. The hacker group Anonymous dumped tons of private data, including names and other identifying info. And extremism researchers say it will allow them to gain new insight into how they operate online. Drew Harwell, tech reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, you're not crazy. You are spending more time in that fast food drive-thru, and they're also a little less accurate. A new study done with mystery shoppers found that we are spending about a minute more in these lines than we were last year. And when it comes to accuracy, Chick-fil-A and Taco Bell top the list. Amelia Lucas, restaurant reporter at CNBC.com, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So it's still a competitive market for buyers. It's still definitely a lot more demand than supply, but we're seeing some of the frenzy that we saw last winter, last spring. Some of that frenzy is going away. Joining us now is Nicole Friedman, U.S. housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Well, finally, some good news for all those buyers out there. This uh, housing market has been just absolutely insane over the course of the pandemic. And uh, right now, what we're starting to see is the market cooling just a little bit, very modestly, but it's still very much good news for, you know, all those people that were trying to buy houses, being outbid, extremely high home prices. So, Nicole, what are we seeing out there? What's been changing? So the market is cooling down a bit. I think it is important, as you say, it's just modestly. So it's still a competitive market for buyers. It's Still definitely a lot more demand than supply, but we're seeing some of the frenzy that we saw last winter, last spring, some of that frenzy is going away. And so part of that is just some buyers are taking a break. They haven't been able to get a home. Maybe they've been priced out of the market because prices are rising so quickly, or they're just frustrated and taking a step back. And so there is a little bit less demand out there. And then at the same time, you know, supply is expected. It's not quite coming back yet, but expected by the end of the year, there's going to be a little bit more supply. Builders are building more homes. Some homeowners are looking at the high prices and thinking, you know, now's maybe the time to sell. And so there's some expectation that it could get a little bit calmer in the coming months too. Now, uh, Nicole, we spoke about this before. I'm looking to buy my first home throughout all of this. And it's just so frustrating, right? Especially with being outbid so much. That was one of those things that frustrated me to a T to put a bid out there that you thought was pretty competitive and then just get blown out of the water. So I was one of those people that kind of took a little break from it just to wait for the market to cool down. So this, this news is encouraging, but let's get into some of what we're seeing there as well. You know, so we're seeing the number of average number of offers decline a little bit, which is really interesting. And even one of the things we spoke about before too, People were just waiving all sorts of inspections and contingencies, appraisals, all sorts of stuff just to kind of win those bids over. The number of those is dropping as well. 
So it's still, you know, there's still more multiple offers per home. So according to the latest figures, it's about 3.8 offers per home on average, but that's down from 4.5 offers per home in July. And so that's still, you know, every house is getting more than one offer, but it's not quite as competitive. Each buyer has a slightly better chance. And the same with, as you say, people who were, you know, waiving inspections, waiving appraisals, which is risky for a buyer that you're giving up some of your protections. And it's a way to, you know, win a bidding war, make your offer more competitive. And now that buyers feel that they have a little bit more leverage, a little bit more control over what's going on, they're taking back some of those protections. They're, you know, again, requiring inspections or appraisals. So that is another sign that maybe the market is coming in slightly a little bit more into balance. Yeah, that was one of the uh, frustrating things too for me as well, because first time home buyer, you're worried about all those things. You don't want to drop those contingencies. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was tons of offers we made where they say, well, maybe drop it. We'll see what happens. So that's good news as well. Price cuts, uh, which is interesting too. There's a lot of houses that are going up there that are going in now with price cuts. So we're seeing now for four straight months, the number of listings with a price cut has increased. And so some of that, you know, talking to real estate agents, they say some sellers are just looking at the market and they're being way too optimistic about what price they can get for their home because prices are rising really quickly. But there's still going to be a seller who says, you know, maybe I'll just put a crazy number out there, see what happens. And so there's a little bit less of that going on that a seller can just get any price they ask for for their home. So there are more listings. The sellers are having to, you know, reduce the price, adjust the price downward before it actually sells. And so that's another sign that, you know, buyers aren't willing to just pay kind of anything they can. There isn't necessarily that mania that we were seeing earlier in the year. We're also seeing about uh, 22 percent. This is from August of home sales, existing home sales were purchased in cash. A lot of people still buying in cash. You wrote another report about how there's a lot of startup firms that are helping home buyers win these bidding wars with all cash offers. How does that work? Yeah, so that's a big trend right now is that it can be hard for buyers with a mortgage, which is most buyers, to compete against a cash offer. A seller will often prefer a cash offer because it can close more quickly. It's less likely to fall through because of a financing issue. And so if there's a cash offer in the mix, even if it's slightly lower, sometimes the seller will still choose it above a mortgage offer. And there are a lot of cash buyers in the market right now. As you said, 22%. Some of that is investors. Some of that is maybe somebody who sold a home in California and then moves to a lower cost market, like say Texas or Arizona. And because they sold their home for a higher price in the more expensive market, they could just come in and buy a house in all cash. So we're seeing that as well. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, there are these startup companies that are helping people make a cash offer. So they'll basically, you know, front the buyer the money to make an offer in cash. And then the buyer will go get the mortgage and kind of get the mortgage on the back end and pay the company back. But they had the upfront all cash offer to help them compete. And uh, in your, you know, reporting and everything, are are home buyers enjoying that kind of flexibility doing it that way? Have they run into any snags when it comes to that? So it really depends. I think for a lot of home buyers, it can just be an essential tool to help them win in some of these hyper competitive markets. And so buyers sometimes say they really do appreciate having had that option of the all cash offer because they felt like they, you know, with a mortgage, they just were not competitive enough um, in multiple bid situations. But it does cost money. It's not free, right? These companies are providing a service, but they'll often take a fee for that service. And so 
it kind of is up to the buyer whether that is something that they think they can kind of price into their their purchase and they think it maybe will pay off if they can get a slightly lower offer accepted because it's all cash, then maybe it evens out. But it depends, of course, on each buyer's situation. Nicole Friedman, U.S. housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it covers years of materials, just over 150 gigabytes of text over years that really kind of explains who's running some of these sites, when they created them, even kind of passwords and credit card numbers for people. Joining us now is Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Yeah, thanks for having me. The internet company Epic was recently the subject of a hack by the hacker group Anonymous. Uh, You know, they haven't been around for some time, it seemed like, but they came back with this. They hacked Epic and uh, they've been a favorite company for uh, people of the far right, Uh, you know, people that they'll host uh, the websites of people that are into QAnon conspiracy theories, Proud Boys, other people that might have been instigators in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So people that are researchers of extremism and and things like that are really kind of very interested to see what's all in this. I mean, it's uh, just tons and tons of data, names, emails, all this stuff. So, Drew, tell us a little bit more about the hack and then what are we learning from all of this? Epic has been kind of the Internet provider of last resort for, like you said, a lot of these people who have been kicked off of other companies. And so when Anonymous targeted Epic, they were pretty much able to get everything. So it's payment invoices for website domain names, it's emails, it's a lot of stuff. And it really kind of reveals a lot of very interesting and and for a long time hidden information about the people who ran these extremist sites. And, you know, it covers years of materials, just over 150 gigabytes of text over years that really kind of explains who's running some of these sites, when they created them, even kind of passwords and credit card numbers for people. So this is really kind of the big kahuna for a lot of these extremism researchers who've been trying to figure out who are the people pushing this hate online and where do they intend to go next. Obviously, the hacker group Anonymous, uh, pretty big at doing this type of stuff, but a lot of people, you know, and, and this is kind of for the course, it seems like with a lot of these big companies that have got hacked recently, security protocols, very lax or just not very good. And in the same way with this Epic, uh, they said that basic security precautions were just not taken. That's what the anonymous hackers were saying. A lot of the the basics that you would expect from a big mainstream company, they did not see here. I mean, with Epic's system, they had passwords that were stored in an unprotected way. So you were able to kind of read them as text as opposed to, you know, how most companies do them where they encrypt them or hash them in some way. So you can't just read them, you know, and the materials here are really sensitive. I mean, this goes, this has people's, you know, passwords, but also their security questions and answers. It has their credit card numbers. It has internal emails. So this is really just the depth of information here is something that you would really never expect to see, even in some of these hacks where they have some stuff kind of protected in in an extra secure way. So, you know, that's why like researchers are salivating over this information. And yet, you know, the one big thing to note is that Epic didn't just work with all 
neo-Nazis, right? I mean, there were a lot of people who were just totally normal web users who said, hey, I need a domain name. I want to pay eight bucks a month or something. So I'm going to work with Epic. Epic just put out a breach notice that said more than 100,000 individuals are affected here. So, you know, and from looking at the data, a lot of these are just totally normal websites. So they have gotten swept up into this tit for tat kind of battle between extremism advocates and, and the researchers. So, you know, they're really caught in the middle here. And what's going to happen next? I mean, really what we're kind of expecting is maybe not necessarily doxing of people specifically, but, you know, names are going to start popping up. So-and-so you Mm -hmm. might work with, you know, is part of this far-right extremist group, things like that, or or people Mm -hmm. involved in Proud Boys. This is kind of what people are, are thinking is what's going to happen next. I think we're actually just starting to see that now where, you know, names of people who are coming up where, you know, they had these pretty peaceful seeming lives. They worked, you know, normal jobs on college campuses or they're real estate agents. And, you know, actually we're seeing their names and um, information on invoices for domain names that are, you know, a Holocaust denial or Proud Boys, you know, uh, like racist, white supremacist stuff online. So it's really kind of exposing these people in a very private way. And, you know, if these people were proud of this, they, they, they may not have hidden their information for so long. And yet this hack has really kind of lifted the veil off of them. So I think there's going to be a lot of revelations here. And from some of what we've seen, it's already pretty staggering. So the next couple of months are probably going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, people are saying that without Epic, right, without this company, many of these extremist communities might not have taken the hold that they did because it wouldn't have given them that opportunity to kind of organize and put that information out there. What has Epic said for all of this? They, I mean, their founder, he's got a, a great name, Robert Monster is his last name. You know, what have they said for their part on all of this? Yeah, Rob Monster, he has always kind of held himself as we are the defenders of free speech. I mean, your your point is a good one in that a lot of these people were kicked off of more mainstream sites that said, hey, we don't want to work with you. We don't want the public backlash or we're just drawing a line. So in another world that may have said, well, I don't have the internet resources now, I have to just go on offline. But Epic kind of provided them a launch pad for them to stay online. So, but, you know, Rob Monster has always sort of said, that he is just, you know, not out to decide what people think. He just wants to host anybody and everybody, but that he also has, you know, his own barriers too, where there's a lot of stuff he he says he won't host either. And they have had some moments in the past where they've, you know, after a couple mass shootings where they said, actually, you know, the, the fear of violence is too big here. We're going to step back. But a lot of people have been having this conversation and saying, we need to draw clearer boundaries around what we think is appropriate. We don't want companies to be hosting this racist crap online like you know and so that's a big kind of free speech debate that's still happening right now and you know rob monster and an epic sort of fell on the side of defending you know in this case a lot of like white supremacists and that kind of yeah. thing so i think it's going to be interesting to see how that debate debate flourishes now drew harwell tech reporter at the washington post thank you very much for joining us awesome thank you Number one is the fact that Americans are just using drive through lanes a lot more than they were before the pandemic. You know, they're just more crowded. So if it's a longer line, you're going to be waiting more time for your food. Joining us now is Amelia Lucas, restaurant reporter at CNBC.com. Thanks for joining us, Amelia. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about one of my favorite things, food. I obviously, I love food and restaurants, but the time that you spend in the drive through 
at fast food restaurants has been uh, the subject of some actual studies and, and things be- that I never knew before. Your latest article talks about how it's not just your imagination. You really are spending just a little bit more time in the drive through and the orders that are being taken are a little less accurate. So, Amelia, tell us a little bit about this. What, how much time are we spending in drive throughs So this year, the total time in the drive through became 382 seconds, which is nearly a minute longer than pre-pandemic time, according to this annual report from Sea level HX, which does kind of an annual study, sends out mystery shoppers to different fast food chains to test their drive throughs yeah, so we're spending, it's like about six minutes or so, I guess, total is what it seems to be about. But yeah, they, they use mystery shoppers. They sent them to drive throughs across 10 chains, and I think it was about 1,400 restaurants in total. So that's what they're seeing is that we're just spending that little bit more time. Why do they think that is? What is the behind all of it? So there's a couple of different reasons why this could be happening. Number one is the fact that Americans are just using drive through lanes a lot more than they were before the pandemic. You know, they're just more crowded. So if it's a longer line, you're going to be waiting more time for your food. Two, there's a labor shortage right now, or labor crunch. Restaurants are having a really hard time finding enough workers to staff. And so that means, you know, there aren't as many people in the kitchen filling your orders. It might be uh, people juggling a few more tasks than they normally would. Yeah. And on that front, real quick, just uh, newer workers, right? We've seen the labor shortage, but if you're having a lot of turnover, newer employees, they might not know the system right. You know, that could bog things down as well. Yeah, definitely. If they haven't had as much training or as much time for training as well, it certainly makes things a lot more difficult. A third potential reason, too, is that a lot of fast food chains last year kind of trimmed down their menus, got rid of things that weren't selling as well because they couldn't have as many workers in their kitchens. But now they've started to bring some menu items back, and that just, you know, makes it again, more difficult for the workers to complete orders as fast as they need to. As I mentioned at the beginning too, order accuracy dropped also for this last year. What did it drop to and and who's doing it right? Like who are the best ones that are getting the orders right? So now about 85% of fast food orders are fulfilled correctly compared to 87% last year. And top of the list this year for accuracy was Chick-fil-A and then Taco Bell, which is owned by Yum Brands, came in second. Yeah, and then I guess there was a tie between Arby's, Carl's Jr., and Burger King. Those all tied for third place. You know, that's just an interesting thing. I, I guess part of it, they say, obviously, improve the technology that you're doing with, you know, those little digital menus that kind of read out what your order are just so you can kind of confirm along the way. Those are very helpful in getting those orders right. Did we see who did it right when it came to speed as far as like less time spent in those drive throughs Yeah, so unfortunately this year, they did not publicly share the rankings for each of the 10 restaurants and how well they did in terms of speed. But last year, KFC was at the top of the list, which makes sense because, you know, putting chicken in buckets is definitely much faster than hand flipping some burgers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got to cook the chicken beforehand and whatnot. I'd be curious to see what that list is. You know, one of my favorites, I live in California, obviously, in and out I love going there. But man, anytime you... you get into an in and out line, you're going to be there for a while. And depending at the time of day, the line is into the street in a lot of places. So, so that's a very tough one to get through. Unfortunately, in and out was not one of the 10 chains that was uh, surveyed because they're not national. But, you know, I certainly, I wonder about some of the other ones that didn't make the list as well, like Starbucks. Amelia Lucas, restaurant reporter at CNBC.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 